Well, this morning, if you will, join me in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at one verse in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look to verse 42. This morning, our sermon is entitled, Giving to Those Who Ask, and our key words for our worshipers in training are give, serve, and love. Now today begins what the elders have agreed is going to be an annual focus of ours. And that is an emphasis on the community benevolence that we provide as a local church. Now many of you probably aren't really in a position to realize just how much we actually do give to our community each year in terms of benevolence needs. And by this I'm talking about helping people pay important bills, and to put food on the table for their families, to meet the needs that are actually needs in the community. In our budget, we allot $2,500 per year to community benevolence, but we want to supplement that. We want to add to that with additional funds that we can collect each year in our benevolence emphasis Sunday like today. Additionally, we work hard to organize and keep our food pantry stocked, And in that, we have developed a great ministry as people come for food and we're able also to have conversations with them and give them Bibles and to uh, talk to them about other needs they might have. I thank God over this almost seven years that I've been at Ephesus Church, we've seen a steady increase in what we've been able to do in our community benevolence. And we'd love to see that upward trajectory continue. Now, with all of that said, there's a very difficult reality to all of this and how we do it. Mercy ministry. That's really what our benevolence is. It, It requires a lot of wisdom. It can be very tough. And sometimes it doesn't seem like we can always know what the right answer is. I've said before, and I believe one of the absolute most difficult things that a church is called to do is mercy ministry. Specifically, benevolence in the local church's community. Some mercy ministries rather straightforward. The Bible instructs us in Galatians 6.10 to do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So within the body of Christ, there should not be any unfulfilled needs so long as the church is able to meet those needs. And as a local church, we've sought to fulfill that biblical obligation. Some of you have been recipients of the mercy of the body of Christ when needs have arisen. And that's anything from having important bills paid to having meals provided and even the very important things of receiving prayer and words of encouragement and and notes and things of that nature. But most specifically, the emphasis is on physical need. And we've never limited, as a church, the amount of assistance we will give to someone in the body of Christ so long as there is a legitimate need. So that aspect of mercy ministry is rather straightforward, scripturally. But I imagine, if you're anything like me, your immediate thought is, well, how in the world do we determine, as a church, if we should help someone in the community to do something like pay a bill? When do you tell someone no, and and is there a clear way to know when we should tell them yes? 
Well, welcome to the difficulty. But as with all things, the Lord hasn't just given us a command. He has also provided for us all that we need to know, all that we need to struggle through in this difficult issue, that we can come to a wise, God-glorifying conclusion. He gives us principles. He gives us examples. And as Christians, he gives us discernment and the Holy Spirit to help us apply those principles and use those examples wisely. Now, as for the importance of mercy ministry itself, the Bible speaks very loudly on this issue, as we're going to see. The great American evangelist Jonathan Edwards, in one of his sermons, said, Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in more peremptory, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? It's a very interesting statement. Edwards is considered by many, even those who aren't Christians, to be the greatest mind that America has ever produced. He was a bright guy, and he didn't use preacher hyperbole. He didn't make offhanded comments. And he says there's no command in the Bible that is laid down in a more clear and urgent way than the command to take care of the poor. There's nothing clearer. Now notice he doesn't say there's nothing more important He says there's nothing more clear. So that's our question. Is he right? What does the Bible say about mercy ministry? I'm going to focus in several areas this morning, but our primary text is in Jesus, is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount as he is clarifying the law for all who are hearing him. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 42. Here's what he says. Jesus said, give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And that undoubtedly raises a lot of questions for all of us. So that's where we'll dig in. We begin in 1826. This is the year after the abolitionist William Wilberforce left Parliament in England. And the future leader of the evangelicalism entered into the House of Commons. His name was Anthony uh, Ashley Cooper. He was known as Lord Ashley until his succession to, the, uh, to be the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury upon his father's death in 1851. He's very different than Wilberforce. And although less well known, he's potentially of greater importance to us. Shaftesbury's Christian vision of society was remarkable and one I believe should be recovered. He faced up to the challenge of poverty with a passion and with a Christian vision that was built upon Scripture and a principle of voluntary giving on the part of each believer. When it came to the role of government in poverty alleviation, he understood to that the role of government was very limited to the point of basically only supporting the structure within which the church can come and do its job. His primary emphasis was on the importance of gospel conversion for each individual. And he highlighted the results of true conversion being a people who transform society. So for Shavesbury, the appropriate response to a poverty alleviation was through the adoption of biblical principles. 
And most specifically, Christians freely giving to others in the context of their being members of the kingdom of God. When Shaftesbury died, thousands of people lined the streets for his funeral because he was so beloved for all that the, of the work that he had done. Literally hundreds of Christian voluntary societies were helped by this man. Now, unfortunately for the church, since the days of Shaftesbury, all throughout the world, the responsibility that he saw so clearly in the scriptures for Christians to fulfill has nearly all been handed over to government entities. Churches make efforts in mercy ministry here and there, but with so little at stake because it's been given over to others to handle, the impact of the church in society has been greatly limited. By and large, conversions that the church sees do not come through the means of mercy ministry throughout the country. Now, the Lord will always use whatever means he sees fit and has determined to save sinners. However, that's not my point. There are very few examples within the church of those who've been shown mercy by God through the direct mercy ministry of the church, which Shakespeare believed, because of the evidence of what he saw, was the primary means by which the church would see people come to salvation. Now, my point isn't to guilt us into more fervent efforts in mercy ministry. My prayer is that we will develop a more robust theology of mercy, that we would recapture something of this biblical call that Shakespeare emphasized, to give freely, to give often, all as a means to see God glorified in our showing mercy to others, because God has shown great mercy to us. I have three main areas I want us to look at this morning, and they are these. First is the responsibility of the church in meeting the needs of the poor. Then we will look at the importance of applying biblical wisdom in poverty alleviation. And then lastly, we will look at the biblical call to cheerfully and freely give to fulfill the needs of others. So first, the biblical responsibility of the church in meeting the needs of the poor. The Old and the New Testaments of the Bible are replete with examples and commands regarding the church's responsibility toward the poor. Let's consider the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. In Romans 15, Paul is writing to the Romans and he says this, I have wanted so desperately to come to you. Paul, at that point, had not yet been to Rome. He hadn't traveled that far west, but he says, it has been my highest ambition to preach Christ where he has not yet been known. So altogether, he's saying, I've desperately wanted to come to you, and I thought I would be there by now, but I can't come. This great desire of my heart will have to be postponed. Why? And this can be easily missed, but it's important to us this morning. He writes this, because I'm taking money from the churches to the poor, the famine-stricken victims in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was undergoing a great uh, famine at the time. So what are the implications of that? For Paul, his taking care of the poor in Jerusalem 
was at least as important to him as going to preach Christ in Rome. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a lot of Paul's time was committed to this very task, to getting money to Christians who were in great need. Now, yes, of course, his primary task was to preach the gospel, to preach Christ and him crucified. He said that is of first importance. But he put a lot of effort toward mercy ministry. Again, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, remember when Paul and Peter had a disagreement over Jewish and Gentile Christianity? The real question was, can a non-Jew become a Christian? And of course, the answer was yes. But in the end, Peter and Paul split up. And Peter went to the Jews, Paul went to the Gentiles. But Galatians 2.10 tells us something very interesting. There was something that all of the apostles agreed on completely. And Paul reveals it to us and he writes this. All the apostles did was urge that I would remember the poor, which I have always been most eager to do. So the apostles had this agreement that one thing they needed to be completely focused on and united in was caring for the poor. What about other parts of Scripture? Remember, fairly recently, we've looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. This is the parable from which we get the very term mercy ministry. Remember what Jesus teaches us there? Jesus meets a law expert who says to him, how can I be saved? And Jesus' response is, it's simple. All you have to do is be righteous. Well, obviously, Jesus was toying with the guy. He didn't say, accept me into your heart as Lord and Savior. He didn't say that. What he's actually saying is, Law expert, I want to show you that I take the law far more seriously than you do. And to fulfill the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Now it would have been right for the lawyer at that point to say, I can't do that. But instead, what does he do? He tries to justify himself. He tries to get out of the quandary. He says, okay, well, let's take that second commandment. Who's my neighbor? What do you mean I have to love my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. And and this is pivotal in our understanding of giving to those who ask, in our understanding of poverty alleviation in our understanding of how we do mercy ministry, because there is a motive implied in Jesus' parable for those who are doing mercy. And there's also a motive implied regarding God's expectation of those who claim to be members of his kingdom. In other words, if we are saying, I love my neighbor as myself, then we have to be as the Samaritan was. What happens? Remember, the Samaritan is walking along and he finds a Jew who has been beaten and robbed and is in danger of dying on the side of the road. Remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. 
But the Samaritans, this Samaritan got off of his donkey and he does several things. He gives a lot of money away because he provides medical treatment. He provides transportation. He completely ruins his schedule. He gets his hand dirty. He risks his own life because he's in a very bad part of town. And he takes the man and he takes him to an inn and he puts him up for at least two months or so. So what is he doing He's meeting the physical needs. He's meeting the economic needs. He's meeting the medical needs. He's meeting social needs. He's meeting material needs. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asks the law expert, who's the hero in this parable? And the law expert says, the one who showed mercy. Now notice, even the man who's trying to reject Jesus sums up everything the Samaritan does. All of the transportation, all of the money, all of the medical expense, all of that he highlights under the heading of mercy. And Jesus looks at the law expert and he says, you go and do likewise. What he's saying is, if you have any claim to be a person who loves your neighbor, This is what that looks like. Serving those who are abused, providing for those who are hungry, caring for those who are in need of medical help. Work with the people in the road, the people who are helpless. Jesus uses very strong language with regard to this issue. The Bible's language is strong over and over, and here's what it is. Those who have been redeemed by Christ and are walking in the righteousness given unto them will be deeply involved in meeting the physical, economic, and material needs of those who are in need. And if not, there is no claim to being a person who loves their neighbor. You know, in the church, so often there's a tendency for Christians to believe that the ministry of mercy is this optional endeavor for us. But the Bible doesn't leave us that option, does it? There's actually two deadly traps when it comes to mercy ministry. Some people think the gospel is all about social activism and poverty alleviation. So they put all of their eggs into that basket. And their theology and their worship and everything gets wrapped around that. And it's incredibly lopsided and usually ends up quite heretical. On the other side of the spectrum are people and churches who are scared to do anything at all because they don't want to adopt what the other people have in the social gospel. They just want to worship God, have great doctrine, but don't actually ever do anything with it. These things are equally as dangerous, but in our context, if we're honest, we have to say the second scenario is what we are most prone to fall into. So mercy ministry isn't for the social action freaks who want to go around giving your money to everybody else. Mercy ministry is a responsibility of the church. It's a command from God to his people. I was reading something by Pastor Tim Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan, and he's done a lot of work on this issue. As you can imagine, it confronts him on a daily basis. He said this, At one time, I spent several years going around to evangelical churches, teaching them about the ministry of mercy. And almost inevitably, this is what I got. People would say, Well, that's great. We just don't have the money for that particular ministry. 
this is what you have to say to that. Okay, that's sort of like saying, well, you know, we don't have enough money in the budget to obey all of the Ten Commandments this year. We can only obey seven. So which three should we leave out? You see, the fact is, and what Dr. Keller's pointing out, is that it isn't all about money. It's about doing what God requires and using the resources that we do have and using them in such a way that we are able to do the most possible good. And that doesn't just include our dollar bills, but if we're thinking like the Good Samaritan, it includes our homes, it includes our modes of transportation, all of our stuff, whatever we have, that can be used in serving those in need. So you see, Mercy Ministry isn't just about money. It's ultimately about meeting human needs through God-glorifying deeds. When we get to Luke 24, we'll read eventually in verse 19, Jesus was mighty in word and deed. Everything you read about the work that Jesus did, it never says that he showed up somewhere and all that he did was preach. It always says that wherever he went to preach, he also healed people and did great works of mercy. He cast out demons. He didn't just talk about the kingdom of God. He exhibited the kingdom of God through his mighty works that were exceedingly merciful. And I wonder if we've ever really seen what Jonathan Edwards saw in the scriptures. Again, his statement Where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more urgent matter than the command of giving to the poor? Have you ever considered how often and how forcefully the Bible points us to ministries of mercy? You know, really, Jesus' statement here in Matthew chapter 5 is simply summarizing what the rest of the Bible symphonically proclaims individually and corporately as Christians, if we are members of the kingdom of God, we have a responsibility to give to those in need. In regards to this, one of the most chilling passages for me is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And when Isaiah is talking to the Israelites, he's basically telling them, you come to worship You come to offer your gifts, you obey the moral law, you fast every month, and then the word of the Lord comes. And the Lord says, is not this the fast that I choose, that you break the chains of oppression, that you feed the homeless poor, and that you take in those who are without shelter? What he does is reprimand them. He says, your religion is a religion of lip service only because you're not taking care of people with needs. What about Matthew 25? There, Jesus tells us about on the last day, he will appear before everybody. He's dividing the sheep from the goats. Now, who are the sheep and the goats? These are the people who are the real Christians divided from people who aren't. And many of those think that they are. And how does Jesus say he's going to decide that? Interesting language. On the last day, he's going to look at some and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But here's the kicker. He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was shelterless, you gave me shelter. When I was sick, you came to me. 
And when I was in prison, you visited me. And then those people are going to say, Lord, we don't remember seeing you. As far as we know, we've never seen you until today. So when did we do all of those great things for you? We appreciate all of the kudos, but when did we do that? And he says to them, when you took care of these people, when you took care of the least of these, my brethren, when you took care of the poor and the homeless, when you took care of those who were sick and in prison, you took care of me. And then he turns to the people on the other side. You know how it goes, the goats. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And so on and so forth. They're going to say, when did we fail to help you, Lord? And Jesus says, when you failed to help these people, the least of these, my brethren, you failed me. What about James chapter 2? Where James says, you say you have faith, but I say unto you, faith without works is dead. Now, Martin Luther, in looking at this, understood that the Bible teaches we're saved by faith alone, but he said, not a faith which is alone. In other words, yes, you are saved by faith. You are not saved by your works. No, you cannot merit the grace of God through your good works. However, true faith will always result... In good works. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we're saved to that. And so James says at the end of chapter 2, here's real religion. Pure, undefiled religion is the words he uses. To visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. Here's real faith. That when the poor man comes into your midst, you do not walk away from him or walk a a wide swath around him. You walk to him, and you show him mercy. He gets to this climax in James 2, 13. He says, judgment will be without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. Does that give you pause? We're being told, you're going to know if you have real Christian faith if it translates into mercy for others. A life poured out in deeds of mercy to those in need is an inevitable sign of true faith in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, showing mercy is inevitable. It's necessary. It doesn't mean it's immediate. It doesn't mean we're instantly ready to do this. We may have some things to get in order, but it is inevitable. It takes time to develop, but it will happen. So what do we do about this? Truth be told, I don't have to stand up here this morning and do much interpretation of the text for us because it's very clear throughout all of Scripture. I just gave you a good smattering of text. However, when Jesus tells us to give to those who ask, what do we do with that? Do we literally just give whatever we have to whoever asks? Is that what what Jesus is calling us to? Or are there other biblical principles that need to be applied? This is our second point this morning, the importance of applying biblical wisdom in poverty alleviation. Now, the number one principle that we have to remember in all of this is what the Bible so clearly teaches us about ourselves and about others. 
Every single one of us is a broken individual in need of redemption. We are all fractured images of God that need to be repaired and restored. So our relationship to those who are poor should be one in which we first and foremost recognize that both of us are poor and that both of us are in need of the blessing of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. So you see, our perspective should be, a far, uh, be far less about how we are going to fix the problem, how we are going to go to the materially poor and give them what they need. And instead, our focus should be more on how we can walk together with them, asking God to fix us both. And that goes for our neighbors here in Rinkin, for the homeless who ask us for money downtown, for the entire nation or other parts of the world where people live on less than a dollar a day? You see, the reality is that you and I can't fix the problem because the ultimate problem is not material but spiritual. However, you and I do have the answer, and it's Christ. It's not going to come through better techniques It's not going to come through improved methods or better planning because reconciliation is ultimately a work of God. Poverty alleviation only occurs when the power of Christ's resurrection reconciles our key relationship with him. And only then will we see transformation of both individual lives and local, national, and international systems. This is why we can truly say that the richest men in the world are among the poorest if they do not know Christ. And likewise, the most destitute of the world are the possessors of the greatest riches if they do know Christ. And for you, friends, if you don't know Christ, no amount of wealth in this world can make you rich. What good is it if a man obtains the whole world but in the end loses his soul to hell? You who do not believe, you are poor. Repent of your sin and your self-sufficiency and trust in Christ alone that you would be saved. That's the call of the scriptures, that you would know the mercy of God, that you can show mercy to others. So, should we as a church strive for the reconciliation of individuals and local, national, and international systems and institutions? Well, the answer is, of course, we are, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, ministers of reconciliation. We need to preach the gospel We need to find treatments and cures for diseases and to find solutions for affordable housing and food shortages and all of these things. But most important in all of this is that we are praying to the Lord and we are saying, Lord, be merciful to me and to my friend because we are both sinners. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For without you, we cannot fix our communities. We cannot fix our nations. We cannot fix anything in our world. So you see, until we get rid of the mentality that we are the great hope and everybody 
that we assist is a needy underling, we cannot really make any real, lasting, gospel-centered change. Why not? Well, because it's not a gospel-centered mentality. We cannot have a paternal mentality and be gospel-centered. We must stand side by side with those who God has called us to show mercy to and to say, I'm with you because I'm just like you. You need Christ and I need Christ. The difference may be that Christ has shown me mercy and I want to show that mercy to you. Now in light of all of this, we do have a very real responsibility. And God has given us the resources to fulfill that responsibility. What do we do? You know, I think as American Christians, we have a reluctance to take Jesus' words in Matthew 5 at face value. And that's a problem. Here's my point. As a general principle, when we have the means to provide for those in need, our first response ought to be that we will help them. However, we have to apply the rule of faith. And that's fancy language for saying we have to take all that the Bible says into consideration. And there are a few other principles that we need to apply here. And when I think about this issue, there are questions that the Bible should lead us to ask about someone who comes to us seeking assistance. Three things I want to give as examples. First is this, is there a legitimate need? Sometimes people are in their predicaments because they have a difficult time discriminating between what is a need and what is something that's simply nice to have. Mercy ministry is a ministry that God calls us to to provide for basic needs first and foremost. And we need to ask that question, is this a need? Secondly, and this is where it gets very difficult, Is this person biblically classified as someone who should receive benevolence assistance? And here's what I mean by that. There are numerous warnings in the scriptures for those who are poor stewards of what God has given them and that they have frittered away through their own laziness. Paul addresses this very thing. It was going on in the church in Thessalonica. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Strong words from the Apostle Paul. Now, what is he saying? He's saying if a person is able to work, but they are not willing, 
then they should not receive support. They're being busybodies. Now, what this doesn't mean, this doesn't include a man or a woman who's looking for work after losing a job or something like that, but is this someone who's capable of working and diligently pursuing opportunities to do that work and they continue to come up short? If so, we have an obligation to show them mercy. But notice Paul's language in 2 Thessalonians is about a willingness to work. Not necessarily that someone is. But if all of the evidence proves them to be walking in idleness, to give them assistance would not be showing them mercy. In fact, it would be helping them to persist in their sin. We must be agents of reconciliation and mercy, but we cannot be enablers. Thirdly, how much is enough? I'm thankful that we as a church have men who've worked hard as deacons to establish some guidelines for us as a church with regard to how much assistance we give to those who come to us seeking our help. And we realize, as Jesus said, that there will always be the poor among us. We can't uh, eliminate poverty. Can we help everyone? No, of course not. But if we are to help some, we realize with limited resources, we need to set some boundaries that we can use to help assist others. And as a church, that's a little bit easier to do. But what about you and me? What about as individuals? How do we make these determinations? If someone comes to me seeking my help as a Christian, what do I do about that? I believe the answer lies in what we are praying when we ask God to do a work in our hearts with regard to showing mercy to others. That brings us to my final point this morning, and that is this, the biblical call to cheerfully and freely give to fulfill the needs of others. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor and a missionary in Scotland in the 1800s, and he once said this. He said, I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires an old, a, a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its life blood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. You see, McShane was emphasizing the very thing we looked at in the scriptures earlier, and that is that the truly converted heart will be a liberally benevolent heart. What limits shall we set in our giving to those in need? Only the limits we are able to set in good conscience as we walk with God in submitting to his revealed will. In other words, when I as a Christian reflect on the great mercy that I've been shown by God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, should not my heart be moved to be more and more generous to others in showing mercy to them? Brothers and sisters, the Bible calls us to cheerfully and freely give to fulfill the needs of others. And when we walk with God and we reflect on his great mercy toward us, we are more and more able to give to those who ask. 
We are more and more able to see where mercy is needed and to give ourselves and our resources to fulfill those needs. You see, meeting the needs of others, showing mercy, giving to those who ask. As children of God, it isn't something we do because it's a duty. It's something we do out of sheer delight because we know that in doing that we are doing so because God has continuously poured out his mercy on us. Shall we not cheerfully and freely give to others? I pray that God would give all of us merciful hearts, that we might love others around us, that we, will, that we would have to give what God has given to us, and that we would be reminded along the way that we are just like them in need of Christ, just like them, in need of mercy, just like them, in possession of something that God has given me that I might bless them with. Our faith without works is dead, but our faith put to work is a glorious, merciful, cheerful endeavor for the Christian. Is that us as individuals, as families, as a church? Is that who we are? I pray that it is for the sake of God's kingdom and the great renown of our dear Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray asking that you would apply your word to our hearts. That you would make us to be a more merciful people, a more joyful people, a more glad-hearted people in giving from what you have given to us, to others. That our mercy would be shown to others because you have poured mercy into us. Day by day and hour by hour, Lord, the very sustaining of our life is by your mercy. Lord, shall we not show that mercy to others when we have the means to do so? I pray, God, you would make us individually as Christians to be wise in this area. I pray, Lord, as a church, you would help us to rightly apply your principles in showing mercy to our community, to our brothers and sisters. I especially pray, Lord, that none within your body would ever go without their needs being met and that we would rightly use the resources you've given to us to provide for those in great need. And I pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that when we give, we don't do so grudgingly, we don't do so out of a mere sense of duty, but that we can do so cheerfully, gladly. Father, we pray that you would do this work for your namesake, for the glory of Christ and for our neighbors who you've called us to love and serve with the mercy that you have shown us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.